Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. This episode is the first in a series of interviews I did on the floor of SumoLogic's 2019 Illuminate Conference. This first interview is with Ian Murphy. Ian has been a journalist, editor, and analyst for over 30 years and is currently an editor at Enterprise Times. He and I talked about his very interesting background, the need for diversity on security teams, and his passion for working with veterans. So without any further ado, let's dig in. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast and uh, another recording we're doing here in the Illuminate show. And as always, I'm getting to talk to a lot of interesting people like Ian Murphy. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Ian Murphy. I served in the British Royal Marines for a period of time. I then came out into journalism and analyst work, and I run around being disruptive at conferences. <laughs> I like that. Have you rehearsed that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I was just recording for your podcast, and I I joked you should be on my podcast, and here we are. So this is perfect. This is why this stuff is fun. You're a writer, an analyst, editor, Enterprise Times. You've clearly been around the industry a lot. I mean, what's your story? What got you to where you're at today? Other when than being in the Royal Marines. <laughs> when I left the military, I was working in a publishing house, and I couldn't understand why my Atari 800 computer at home could do all sorts of cool stuff and I had to use an old sit-up and beg typewriter in the office Yeah. when we had a mainframe at our other office. And I worked through trying to understand this, got given the rights to go and do a project for the company and discovered when I spoke to magazines like, do you cover PCs? Do you write about word processing software? Bearing in mind, this is 1983. The magazine said, well, no. Do you want to write about it for us? <laughs> so an editor sent me over an IBM PC with two floppy drives and an amber monitor and a little box of single-sided, five and a quarter inch floppy disks <laughs> and a copy of Lotus One, a copy of Lotus <laughs> One, Two, Three. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, and that kind of started it from there. I just love what I do here. And you've basically been some version of like writer, analyst, reporter since then. Basically, is that is that what it amounts to? You've always been writing and. Observing I, and I write. I was a certified trainer for lots of companies in the 80s and 90s. Gave it up in the 2000s because trying to keep skills up was just too much for all yeah. the training. I do a lot of analyst work with companies these days as well. That's when I'm not doing ridiculously stupid long drives, off coaching sport and playing sport and sitting on aeroplanes. Yeah, we should add the context there that <laughs> I was very interested to find out that uh so we're here you know just south of san francisco and that you drove from las vegas and this is a trip that you <laughs> do quite a bit apparently <laughs> and then decided to have a complete mental aberration so instead of coming up via death valley and across yosemites i normally prefer because it's nicer than i-15 and i-5 yeah i decided to drive towards ely for some reason <laughs> yet to be established <laughs> well you seem like you uh, you came out the end okay <laughs> So in kind of talking about your background and things you're interested in, you, you had mentioned a topic that I thought was really, really interesting. I mean, a, a bunch of people that I've interviewed on the podcast, we've talked a lot about culture. I, I've always found that that's a topic that's both, you know, sometimes it's, it's overcovered, but then it's really undercovered in, in a lot of ways. Like it, people talk about it a lot, but it's so key. Like we're talking about humans. Mm -hmm. and as much technology as you want to talk, we're talking about humans. 
you know, particularly in the field you're in, I mean, what are you seeing in that in particular? You were talking a little bit about diversity and IT security, kind of where you focus. Yeah, part of the problem with IT security is you walk around most socks today, and what you see is white middle class men. No. <laughs> it's a shocker, isn't it? <laughs> They're generally university educated, they understand how to code, and all we're doing is perpetuating this myth that to do security, you've got to be a geek. The problem is the attackers have a whole different mindset. Yeah. They will social engineer the hell out of an organization. Well, you can't defend social engineering with technology. You can only defend that with people and by educating people. They will suddenly throw up a weird set of attacks that technology might catch, but actually, if they're fishing and looking for things, they'll use stuff you wouldn't expect. Good example, somebody's monitoring your social media feed. They notice you've started talking to somebody you haven't seen for a very long time and you've arranged to meet up. Right. My next attack on you would be to see when you meet up, see what you said you were going to do, look for some photos on social media, and then send separate emails to the pair of you pretending to be from the other person. I might just embed a couple of attachments of photos that I say we took on the night. Yeah. Most people are going to click on those photos. You've now enabled me to get my code on your machine. And so when you talk about you know, diversity in that context. So you, are you saying that the, basically the lack of diversity makes that easier? It's the, lack of diversity attacker? based on age. Yeah. It's based on culture. It's based on gender. It's based on race. Yeah. So let's say we see an attack going on in South Africa and it's targeting businesses that are mainly populated by 15 to 25-year-olds and they are based around a particular culture. Yeah. If the attack team who see that are white and middle class, they may not understand the relevance of some of the terms and some of the engineering, particularly mm. the social engineering used in that attack. The net result is that they will be unable to parse that and pass that out to their customers in terms of, hey, we're seeing this type of attack beginning to develop, this type of vector being used. Yeah. Therefore, you have a gap in your visibility. The stupid thing is you actually have the intelligence sitting right in front of you. But you just don't see it. You just don't see it. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you think, you know, other than I guess the obvious, like why, why is this the case? Is it just, you know, a larger factor of being the technology industry in general or is it security in particular? Or? I think it's very security focused. Yeah. There's this obsession that everybody in security needs to have a degree at the moment. Yeah. Um, no. I would go and employ a whole lot of people who don't have degrees because they're much more useful to me than people who've spent all their life in education. Don't get me wrong. Those people have a very good role to play for me further down the line. But actually today, when there's a massive skill shortage, there isn't as big a skill shortage as you think. So we need to change our focus of what our employees are. So walk around. In the UK, we call them council estates. Over here, you call them projects. Yeah. These are areas where you've got deprivation, you've got a lot of crime, but you've got a huge high technology usage in those zones. This is where your generations of hackers are being schooled. Mm. They're not going out stealing cars or killing people. There's an easier, softer way for them to make much more money, and that's technology. They've hacked their favorite game because they don't have the money to buy the next version or the upgrade or the additional pieces to go with it. Yeah. They have problem-solving skills. They have the interest in doing this. Now, they might be excluded from school because they're disruptive, mm. but you can teach them 
that traditional educational block. You can improve their writing, improve their reading, improve their numeracy. What you can't do is teach people problem solving. It's an innate ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you've got Wizards of the Coast presenting here. One of the challenges I think that's interesting for them is that they're dealing with gamers, role players, people who are preconditioned to solving puzzles. Yeah. And what is a security attack? But it's a series of unlocking a puzzle. So yeah. bring these people in, give them an education. doesn't matter how old they are. Start them at 15, 16, 17, 18. It really doesn't matter. On-the-job education. They bring skills to you. You give them something back. You give them escape out of where they're stuck at the moment, where their life may just end up being worse and worse crime. But you then get a whole bunch of side benefits. You get a whole different cultural mix in the organization, a whole different view on why some attacks work, a whole different view on what vectors are clearly open that you would never naturally look for. Well, you know, when, when you say that, okay, so I don't know if the right word is trope or whatever that comes to mind, but, you know, I'm thinking the, the wild but smart kid who... Hacks gets caught, put into prison, and the NSA recruits him, right? You know, it's like mm -hmm. that it's after they've committed a crime. But it seems like in the real world, that's probably not the best way to recruit these people. So how do you actually get to that group of First of all, you've got to start reaching out to them. You've got to find some way to engage them. And at the moment, we're not in cybersecurity engaging the gaming companies. Hmm. We have lots of hackathons go on. We have lots of competitions for schools go on. But often many of these kids are the excluded group. Right. They're not going to be invited to take part in the competition at school because they're not in school. Yeah. So we need some way to use games or something else to engage these kids into doing stuff. We need to create a credible engagement with them. Show them that we're not trying to trap them or get them in trouble, but give them a way to do something, to achieve something. Pay them early on for something they find. Find a way to show them there's a career out of this. Now, that career isn't, again, talking about tropes, that career isn't somebody who's not seen the sun in six years, sitting in the basement <laughs> or the loft, wearing a hoodie 365 days of the year, and who wouldn't know a bathroom apart from to use it to get rid of things. <laughs> you have a very creative way of explaining things. I like that, Ian. That's really interesting. I mean, do you, well, I mean, do you see anybody doing this? I'm starting to see this certainly in Europe. There's an increasing attention on this within Europe, and it's coming from security companies, and it's coming from large enterprises who are realizing that inviting people in for interviews and throwing away any CV that doesn't start with a degree is losing them a huge set of skills across yeah. the entire business. They're now much more willing to go to where the people are to talk to them. They're willing to meet with these people. They're setting up apprenticeships. They're showing them that there is a way forwards in this. Now, this is not just about attracting people who can hack and code and solve problems they're also reaching into other disciplines so when we talk about phishing attacks think about the psychological impact of this how do you manipulate people so psychology there's a whole base for that we don't prosecute all the cybercrime why because lawyers have no clue what it's about yeah if they don't know what it's about they don't know how to charge it and let's be honest lawyers not interested if he can't bill Right. So if we're going to prosecute, why are we not making cyber part of the legal framework, part of the legal courses they do, engage these people in? We did this in the 70s. In the 1970s, we had this massive explosion of computing, mid to late 70s. And one of the things we did at that point in time was we went around universities and we took people who were on arts degrees or mathematics degrees or science degrees, and we said to them, 
come and be computer programmers. Yeah. And we wanted them, particularly those on arts and science, because they had problem-solving. Mathematics is just as valid. Right. And we turned them into that generation of analyst programmers from the late 80s through to the mid, so, so late 70s through to the mid-80s. There's a good case now for, at that degree end, going out and finding these people, and they then supplement these other people on projects. There's also a wider scope on this when I talk about culture. Many companies recruit people who look like them. Right. Why? Because it's a safe thing to do. Yeah. I know the school you went to. I know what I can expect. I can communicate with you. When you're trying to recruit people from different social strata, it's very, very hard to know how to engage with them, how to talk to them. You get this them and us in the office straight away. Yeah, and I would think, I mean, having been a you know, hiring manager myself, it's like, what are the red flags if you're not in that you know, group? Yeah, if you went to the same school and you came from a similar background, you know what to look for and what mm-hmm. you shouldn't see. Whereas if they're not in your, you know, your group, you know, how do you know what to look for and what not to look for? And, and this is also where education has become part of the problem. Yeah. Businesses continually complain that when people leave school or they leave college or they leave university, they really are not the people they want. And they have mm. to spend all this time retraining them to understand the real world. Right, right. But that's because we set up education in such a way that we're trying to teach them a set of facts and a set of skills that take a long time to teach. If you change a curriculum, you start with people between five and eight because that's your start point for this. Yeah. Now think, by the time they leave university, you're talking up to 20 years. So it's 20 years before your next major shift. You cannot adapt education as fast as business wants it unless business gets involved. And where we've lost an awful lot of this vocational training out of education, we've lost our ability to have that rapid turnover and that improvement. And vocational training leads to apprenticeships, leads to degree equivalent apprenticeships. Right. You know, it's interesting you say that because I I would think that, um, at least in past experience, it feels like Europe sometimes does a better job of that than the U.S. Because the U.S. is just, there's been a downplaying. It's like, well, everybody has to go get a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. The idea that I could go out and learn a specific skill set that's highly useful to society without having to go get, you know, a bachelor of arts, none of which will you remember in a few years. I mean, do you feel like you see that more in Europe that they are doing? Am I right? Very much so in Europe. And there's another reason for this, and that is the cost of getting that degree. Yeah. People are now leaving university, they're leaving college, they're leaving school with debt. Yeah, right. That debt stays with them for most of their life. The vast majority of people who leave university do not start on a job that is good enough to pay off their debt in five or ten years. Right, right. So why are we putting people in this position? It has major impact for society in other ways. They can't get a mortgage. Yeah. They can't buy a car. They can't move into a nicer neighborhood or buy a house or or do other things they might want to do with their lives. So we need to change this. And we need to change this for the future health of these people going forwards. One group that we have been relying on a lot is the ex-military. We've been looking at veterans, particularly in security, to solve problems. And it's a subject close to my heart as a veteran myself and as somebody who works with a number of charities that help raise money for mental health issues amongst veterans. Mm -hmm. We have veterans dying daily on both sides of the Atlantic, taking their own lives because they don't see a way out of this for mental health. Mm. But many of these veterans are the sort of people that security companies would employ. Yeah. Because they're task-focused, they're mission-focused, they will get the job done at all costs. They're not people who want to turn up at nine and go home at five o'clock. Right. 
you know, if the problem has to be solved, they will stay until they've solved the problem or till they can hand it to somebody else right. and the problem can be worked on. Now, if they've come back from deployment and they've got a physical injury, we can all see that. And people will adapt the office to accommodate them. People no longer point and stare if you're in a wheelchair or if you've got a prosthetic leg or a prosthetic arm. But mental health injuries are so much harder to detect. Mm. And many of them struggle at times with the pressure suddenly that cybersecurity puts on them. So we're having in the cybersecurity industry to also deal, as we try and push diversity, we're having to deal with mental health that comes into this. Yeah. And it's becoming another significant challenge for the industry. How do you deal with that? You just make that part of like, you offer those services like when they come on board? Or? So I'll give you an example from IBM. I was talking to their European Vice President of Security a couple of years ago on a podcast of all things. <laughs> and we were talking about how do you recruit from the military? How do you help people make that transition from a military life to a civilian life? Right, right, right. It is a tough transition. Right. Even more so today where there's so much expectation. What they do is if you join from the military, they match you with somebody in that department who also came from the military at some point. Oh, interesting. Now, if they can, they will match you with somebody from the same branch, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Right. But at the very least, they will be another serving personnel if they can't match you to your branch. And that person will help mentor you through that transition period. That now, in sense. that conversation, they start to understand a little bit more about them. They make it clear that there are services that they can access healthcare services around mental health. The big problem with mental health enforces is that it's not always exposed when you leave. Right. And armed forces around the world have this problem that if you're a veteran and you leave, if it's not on your record the day you leave, you don't get medical support for it five years down the line. Yeah. I know this personally, family member of mine, ended up having to write a book and get his member of parliament involved in order to get treatment for his PTSD when he left the armed forces. Wow. In his case, it didn't show itself for a number of years. But because it wasn't on his records, and was, but was clearly related to his service, he wasn't going to get treated at all to begin with. Now, that's where an awful lot of veterans are out there, and cybersecurity is pulling those people in. But it's not just the veterans who are suffering from this. It's very easy to look at this and think about veterans. If we look around, we see the same thing with people who are suffering from PTSD who've served as first responders, be that police, fire, ambulance. We see it from ordinary people working in security, the pressure they're under. We're not paying enough attention. Now, diversity gives us an interesting play here. Because people come from different parts of society, because they have different views, they have different expectations, actually they will all react slightly differently in a situation. Mm. You'll find that instead of this, I've employed you because you look like me and therefore big men don't cry, <laughs> people will walk up and ask how you really feel. Yeah. Now, it might take a while for somebody to actually tell you how they really feel, but if we don't start that conversation, then we don't get anywhere. So you have this real set of things coming together that can take cybersecurity so much further. Diversity by all sorts of vectors. Being more human about it. Understanding what the long-term health implications are of the job we want people to do. Yeah. Wow, that's super interesting. I lived in D.C., Washington, D.C. for a long time. Worked with a lot of veterans that were exactly like what you're saying. They moved out of being in the, in the service into security in particular and yeah no it, it makes a lot of sense and 
I don't think there's a lot of companies that were out. I mean, DC, that was just part of the environment mm-hmm. that you hired veterans. It was just kind of a natural, but that doesn't really always extend, at least in the U.S., like outside of DC. So I, I think that really, that really makes a lot of sense. And particularly in this area, you know, kind of thinking forward, I mean, where, how do you see things changing? I mean, what do you see like looking a few years into the future? One of the successes I'm seeing is I'm seeing companies no longer just employing security in their head office. Yeah. If they've got offices overseas, they're starting to realize that the only people who can protect that office in Vietnam or China or Australia or anywhere in Our Europe locals. have to come from that local environment. Right, right. Why? Because they understand the local culture. Therefore, they spot some of the early phishing attacks. But then they combine that knowledge. So they're able to talk to each other a little bit more. So that when something happens in a different office, somebody can say, oh, yes, I come from there. Yeah. And I can tell you that this is because of that. And that sharing that openness of that information is helping to solve that. But that can only come if you've recruited enough people who are diverse enough across cultures to understand where the difference comes from. The other thing I'm seeing is the openness to looking at where we go back to vocational training. Yes, we're still struggling to get into those groups that have got the skills that we want, but that's got to come only by outreach. It's got to come by establishing a set of trust between the two. Where it's not working is that people will think it's too difficult to solve. Yeah. They will take the easy route, which is, well, I'll rely on the CV. But if they've not got a CV, if they didn't finish school, why throw them away? So let's talk about me. I left school at 16 with two O-levels and some CSEs. I barely rate a US high school GED. Hasn't stopped me. Yeah. But I was lucky. I went into the military and they gave me a home. They taught me the things I needed to do. They showed me there's a way forward. I came out into the civilian world and I ran into employers who were prepared to help me go forward, people who gave me some mentoring. As a sports coach now, I work with adults and children. And I believe there's a mentoring role there outside of the sport. You treat somebody as a person. You don't just treat them as what they do in that sport. They're not just a forward or a defensive end or a batter or a goalkeeper. They're a person. They have issues outside of that. So talk to them. Create a safe space so that if you're teaching kids, those kids can talk to each other and then maybe get an adult involved if there's an issue. Because half the time, they have nobody to turn to. No, that makes a lot of sense. Providing that structure is a way to... Yeah. And this is where companies can get involved. They can go into schools. They can start to show themselves. Yeah. I mean, this could probably be a whole podcast by itself but i mean it's that you're definitely getting into this whole idea that like businesses should be more than profit machines you like you and it actually is better for you as a business to not think that way because when you think about bringing in these different groups and reaching out and touching other communities that's actually good for you as a business and we're seeing a changing of the guard 15 years ago corporate social responsibility programs focused on "Mm, were we cleaning up our acts were we being good neighbors yeah that's moved through to understanding more about pollution it's moved through to sponsoring programs we have some companies particularly here in america in california who put up a percentage of their profits a percentage of their employees time a percentage of their products that are given to charities to help people out yeah they allow their staff to make those engagements and nominate who they want to spend that time with and who they want the company to help move forwards that generation has moved from being the new entrance in the company to now having been there for 10, 12 years. They're moving into those management and control roles. 
Right, right. And as they move through, we are seeing the shift. You see it with climate change. You see that drive from the millennial generation in particular to how do we get to grips with climate change. That same generation is also very socially aware in terms of poverty and bringing people on. Mm. We've got a hook to that. And the sooner the old guard management who sit at the top of these companies who didn't have that when they came up through the company. Right. They will never need to earn another penny. They're so comfortably well off. The sooner they realize that there's a shift at the bottom and they recognize that and they change the company and they enable this, right. the sooner you will see change on the street. I like that. Well, I think that's a good note to wrap it up on. In, uh, as I expected, this was a fun discussion. You took us down some fun routes, but this is really, it was very thought provoking. So I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks everybody for listening. And as always, check us out on your favorite podcast app, rate us and review us so other people can find us. See you on the next episode. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.